Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. Joining me this time out is one Jonathan Novik. Did I say that right, Jonathan, or is it Novik? Is it Novik? Novik. Novik, right. Yeah. Now, Jonathan, you emailed me about a week or so ago um, with some very interesting... Well, you'd done a talk at Rocky Mountain, which we'll get to in a moment, but in your email, you mentioned that you'd spent 13 years working with at Audio Precision. Mm-hmm. Can you t- yeah. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, that was a job that just uh, happened to drop in my lap one day. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, I'm an engineer. I come from an engineering family. I built my first stereo at 14 years old. And the only reason why I built it is I heard Macintosh was coming into the area with their test setup where you could bring your system in and they'd test it. So I remember showing my father this, uh, that, hey, this, these people are coming around. I'm going to build a stereo tonight. And he gave me hmm. some, uh, I think they were app notes from National Semiconductor. And I spent, missed school the next day, was up all night, missed school the next day, and went to get my stereo tested. I still have the test results. Um, it, unfortunately, I didn't build a good power supply for it. So it was very weak. It was about three watts a channel. Right. And, um, and I always had this love affair with audio. I was, uh, through college, I was DJing parties. Actually, in high school, I was DJing at an FM radio station. And I was kind of the chief engineer of the station one summer. And uh-huh. so I was always into repairing the gear. And then I started DJing parties and whatnot. And everyone always came to me with their audio questions. And mm-hmm. when I started getting into after college, I was in microwaves and RF, I was designing radar components, but I was still DJing on the side. Eventually, someone started asking me to do weddings, which was, okay, a whole different thing than the house party. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, that led to, I think it was uh, a bat mitzvah, which is a uh, you know, party for 12-year-old, 13-year-old girls. Uh-huh. And so uh, I knew, okay, this is like herding cats, what do, you, what do I do? So I uh, called up the DJ that had DJed my wedding and said, I know you do these kind of events. What do I need to know? I know you're supposed to play games with the kids, but I don't know how to play them. He says, go on to this website. All the professional DJs go there. And so I join and I start asking questions about how do you do one of these events. And I see people asking questions about amplifiers and speakers. And I go, oh, I can't believe these guys don't know this stuff. So I start answering it. One thing leads to another. I'm now going to a national DJ convention. There's one audio topic. I meet the guy and he says, yeah, you know, we need to cover this more. And I said, well, I can do this. And so next year I'm on the schedule and I'm, this is just a side business for me. I'm doing Uh maybe half a dozen weddings a year at the time. Next thing I know, I'm moderator of a site with 70,000 DJs and I become (laughs) the, the, uh, audio expert for the professional mobile disc jockey world. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm still in the RF and microwave community. And one day someone challenges my knowledge on an amplifier specification. So I said, hi, ah, you know, this company, Audio Precision, they're the guys that make all the measurements. And I'm just going to call up the local sales guy. Maybe he can give me a copy of the specification that talks about how the test is done. So I didn't have to pay, I think it was 60 bucks to get a copy of it. Mm -hmm. So I called the guy up and we talked for about 90 minutes and 
He sends me a copy of something called the Audio Measurement Handbook, which is a download. It's probably still on the Audio Precision site. And it's not overly technical. I think it's about 100, 150 pages. And uh, he sends me a copy. I'm glued to it. And I call him up. I think he's overnighted it to me. And that was, mm-hmm. I get it on a Friday. On Monday, I call him back up. I said, wow, that book was great. It's everything I ever wanted to know. And we start talking some more. And he says, you know, we have a job opening down in Southern California. He was the hiring manager. And, <laughs> and I said, well, uh, uh, let me look at your opening. And says, oh, we need somebody in sales. We need, you know, experience in the audio industry. And I'm like, I, I got none of what you want. A month later, I'm working for them. Six months later, I'm their top salesman. Wow, so. okay. <laughs> so for, and, so just, just for people that don't know, audio precision basically are are they the world's leading manufacturer of m- measurement equipment for audio? Is it just audio gear? Well, so the, defining the market is interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, their specialty is in distortion analyzers, you know, frequency okay. response and distortion. They make the best equipment, and they certainly dominate the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, if you start looking at acoustics, there are a lot of other players in the acoustics market. They're pretty mm-hmm. big but I don't know what percentage of the acoustics market they have. And then when you start looking into things like smart speakers and telephony acoustics, well, that's a whole different type of testing. And there are companies like Head, um, uh, what's it called? Head Acoustics, uh, based out of Germany, that is a big leader there in perceptual audio analysis of Mm. speech networks and things like that. And there are lots of different areas. And then on the hobbyist level, you have Room EQ Wizard, which... That's probably, it's free, and uh, I think there are probably more users than that than of anything. Well, I, yeah, because that's the only thing that I've ever used to measure mm-hmm. my room when I when I introduced acoustic treatment, just to see what it would do. Right, um, right. Yeah, I mean, but I, obviously, well, not obviously, but I, um, I, I haven't yet taken the plunge in buying an audio precision piece of equipment to analyze the electrical properties of amplifiers, DACs, um, and and things like that, mainly because of, well, there's a, obviously a financial outlay that's fine, and then there's a there's a very steep learning curve, and obviously experience with this kind of stuff matters. But also, you know, from reading John Atkinson's work with his AP, and basically what you wrote to me about, I mean, if I may quote it, actually, I mean, you gave a, um, you were talking, you went to, you were t- pointing me in the direction of a talk you gave at Rocky Mountain in 2015. Correct. And it, and it was titled, What the Specs Don't Tell You and Why. And I thought this was, was absolutely fascinating. So here is a guy who's worked for Audio Precision for 13 years, is saying that there are limitations to what <laughs> you know the specs or the measurements can... Uh, do you mean specs or measurements interchangeably, Jonathan, or is it... Yeah, for the most, for the most part. Okay. Um, I was specifically talking about the specs that you see on a data sheet, for instance, mm. for a product, uh, which is a, a subset of measurements. It's a mm. you you've dumbed down a set of measurements for the consumer. Mm. Right, but I just thought it was fascinating that you you know, as I say, you you worked for AP for so long, and I think this is you know where your work and Jonathan, sorry, John Atkinson's work really kind of connect is that. Measurements can only tell you so much. Am I inf- inferring that correctly? Or uh, No, you, you're very correct. Uh, 
what I used to say to people is that measurements don't tell you how something sounds, but it may explain why it sounds that way. Right. And so uh, I actually had a uh, moment, let's call it an epiphany moment, when back in 2007, a uh, AES fellow, uh, Alex Voishvilo, works with, he's a transducer designer for Harman, mm-hmm. uh, brilliant guy, PhD. Um, he delivered a paper about, and he did a recent version of the paper about a year ago. He delivered a paper where he did a test where he mathematically changed some audio files and showed that you know, crossover distortion sounded much worse than clipping distortion. And, and so, uh, you know, why do we even do distortion measurements? They're meaningless in terms mm-hmm. of perception. And I had a lot of respect for him. And I walked out of that meeting feeling like I was a snake oil salesman selling distortion analyzers. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very humbling evening. And uh, I woke up the next morning and I was reminded of something that you may have seen this in the talk. Um, the Metricator's maxim, it, not all that counts can be counted, not all that uh, can be counted counts. Mm. And um, this was the sign that Einstein had on his office wall at Princeton University. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, I understand where Alex's confusion was. So I called him up a few days later and I said, I want to do an experiment, but can I borrow some of your slides? And so he shared them with me and I put together this presentation and I had uh, built this circuit where I can actually do the test that he was doing. But instead of mathematically uh, manipulating audio files in MATLAB, I did it through circuitry, Mm. essentially doing the same tests that he was doing. And it was so convincing to so many people that, um, yes, there are instances of high distortion that sound reasonable and instances of low distortion that sound horrible. But the problem wasn't the distortion measurement. It was what people were trying to infer from the measurement. Mm-hmm. And that was the disconnect that Alex had and uh, that many people had and that I had had as a youngster. I remember when I first started looking at uh, stereo equipment, I believed the specs. My father, uh, an engineer, an analog engineer, and uh, he always believed if it measures the same, it is the same. Mm-hmm. Well, it is if you're measuring in all use conditions. And that's where the disconnect often happens. What we see in the spec sheet is not all use conditions. It's one use condition, and it's not the typical use condition. Mm. Yes, because in your, I mean, if I may give away some of your (laughs) Rocky Mountain talk, right? You had a room full of people and you had this box, from what I understood, was introducing um, distortion into a Steely Dan track in real time. Like you could crank it up in real time, right? Yes, yeah. So And you started at zero and you said to everybody, close your eyes. You said that I'm going to introduce distortion very slowly and I want you to raise your hand at the moment it becomes audibly objectionable to you, Correct. right? Yes, yes. And, and you did that, first of all, I think, was that just a, a general, was it a THD? Was it so, just general distortion, the first well, one? W- w- the uh, first test that I did 
is mm. I drove um, the signal into hard clipping. Right. I had I had an op amp in my box, and I was just driving it to the rails, and I was increasing the gain at the input, and mm. then cutting it on the output. So the level that you heard in the room was pretty much constant. Mm-hmm. And I had to say, um, raise your hands when it becomes objectionable, because I never knew what kind of system I was going to give that talk on. Sure, and yeah. I, I probably gave that talk about 20 times in mm. different countries and different cities. And so there was always that one person says, well, I can hear distortion on the clean track. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do anything about that. Mm. Um so, yeah, the first time I do it, I drive it into hard clipping. That's what I was doing. Right. Okay. And then the second time was it, I think it was it crossover distortion? Yes. That you were introducing? Yes. And so what I had is uh, two signal paths. One signal path, I put some back-to-back diodes in there. So a diode is going to put um, you know, six tenths of a volt dropout in the signal. And mm. I kind of mixed the two signal paths. It was a fairly simple circuit, but uh, I just controlled the mix of that circuit. So how much of the clean signal was I getting versus how much of the distorted signal I was getting. Mm. So it wasn't, uh, you know, rocket science in this circuitry, but it got the point across. And whenever whenever, uh, the hands went up and having done this talk over 20 times with probably over a thousand people total in attendance. Mm-hmm. I pretty much knew exactly where those hands were going to go up. <laughs> um, and in the case of the clipping distortion, it was at about 33% was what I would guess the average was. Right. And in the, the case of uh, crossover distortion, it was between three and three and a half percent. So for, for, because, because I'm a novice with this, so I would infer that crossover distortion is the most objectionable of the two to our ears, yeah. ear brains, right? Yes. And, and that was kind of the learning experience from this that I wanted people to take away is that the reason why crossover distortion is worse sounding is because it's present. As a matter of fact, it's more present at lower levels. Hmm. And the days of cranking your car, the stereo to 11 only existed when you had really weak stereos. Um, like mm. I remember my first car, I think this, the radio was rated for three watts, you know, and the car didn't have air conditioning. So you're driving with the windows open and you're using all three of those watts to even hear <laughs> the radio. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you're driving uh, that amplifier into, into clipping distortion, but these days power comes cheaply. And you're, you know, if I would say inside the normal home environment, you're probably listening to less than 10 watts out of your amplifier on a typical listening scenario. So if that's the case, then then most audiophiles are probably hearing, oh God, I'm guessing here, I'm reaching here, forgive me, um, uh, probably more likely to be exposed to crossover distortion than clipping. Uh, perhaps. Yeah, you know, when you get to the audiophile space, you find people that will um, design speakers from a purist standpoint. Mm. 
And so the one specification of a speaker that is generally less important in an audiophile market is going to be the efficiency rating. You know, how much of that electrical energy gets converted into a sound pressure level. Mm -hmm. So you may have some very inefficient speakers because whatever they've done, they've done it for the smooth response that they were looking for. So maybe you're using a little bit more power in the uh, audiophile type speaker than, let's say, in the pro audio market. Let's, if you're doing concerts, you're you're mostly worried about the efficiency of the speaker. Mm-hmm. You know, how loud can it get? How many people can I cover with so many you know, transducers? So. With you know people who are buying audio precision gear, mm-hmm. I mean you you mentioned well you alluded to the sort of the human component earlier on, um, and how people can misinterpret their results. I mean, I guess this is a sort of a fairly thorny question: is do you see this becoming more of a problem as more and more like hobbyists buy uh, audio precision, precision analyzers and you are using them at home? and probably don't have the best handling on how they work and also how to use them. I mean, do you well, find... Yeah, so the how to use them is the easy part. I mean, mm-hmm. their software has gotten pretty easy over the years as they went to what they call the APX series. They're now in their, their B versions of the APX series. It was, mm-hmm. um, let's see, I sold the first one, and that was, I want to say, 2006. So they're 15 mm-hmm. years into this. Um, it's pretty easy to use software. That's, mm. the, that's the easy part. Designing your test is the hard part. Understanding what the limitations of your test uh, is. You know, am I comparing apples to apples? Mm. Uh, do I have my configuration set up close to real world? It's, you know, we use anechoic chambers, right? Because mm-hmm. we can control the ex- the impact of external noise. So mm-hmm. we know what we're measuring is the source that we intend to measure. But we don't listen in anechoic chambers. It's actually very disconcerting to walk inside an anechoic chamber. Mm-hmm. You kind of get a almost like a sense of vertigo because you're not mm-hmm. hearing any echoes that your body would normally use to figure out how big the room is and things like that. Mm. But of course we, it's a very repeatable environment and there are people like, uh, I want to point to Floyd tool and Sean Olive at Harmon mm-hmm. that did their standard listening room, which is much closer to what a person experiences in their home than an anechoic chamber. And so, uh, the kind of work that they do and the, efforts that they went to try to correlate subjective results to objective results is really impressive. Millions Mm -hmm. and millions of dollars were invested into creating such an experience. And what they did is they first got the subjective results. Everyone seems to like this speaker. They don't like that speaker. Let's do the uh, objective tests. Let's put those particular speakers in a test chamber now, and let's see what characteristics seem to correlate with the subjective response. Mm-hmm. That is really the right way to go about doing it. 
Mm. And that's yeah. what I uh, was, uh, you know, the average person in their home, they can have the best audio analyzer on the market, but they're not going to have the resources to design an experiment to that extent. Right. So basically the person who owns an AP has to design their own measurement process. Correct. And, and that could really dramatically influence the results that come out of the AP and therefore how those results would be interpreted, right? Yes. Yes. So there seems to be like a huge human factor in measuring audio gear with, I mean, I'm, we're just talking about audio precision here, but I guess it's kind of, you can extrapolate it in several directions. Is that right? There's this, this big, big human component. Well, yeah. Yeah. The experiment, you, you know, running a test is easy. Designing mm. an experiment is not. And so understanding when you're dealing with apples to apples is, uh, so I would have people that would come to me and uh, say, oh, well, you know, I don't seem to be getting uh, consistent results. And I'd say, well, can I see your test setup? Mm. And if they, if they were local, I could just get in the car and visit them. And I would see, for instance, if they're doing acoustic measurements that they weren't in a chamber, they didn't really have uh, control of any of the reflections. Maybe the measurement mic was pointing uh, to something that uh, there was a reflection that was arriving almost instantaneously because the distance to the speaker was, uh, and the distance to the reflection source were pretty close to each other. Hmm. And I, I just look at some of this stuff and say, you're never going to get meaningful results like that. Um, you, you know, there's, a time when you can do near-field measurements to try to reduce that so you don't need a chamber. But that was the number one problem that I would see. The electrical testing is much easier. Mm. Um, you know, digital testing, very easy for the most mm. part. You know, you're, you know, when digital circuits were still new, everyone was worried about jitter and uh, things like that. Clock circuits these days are pretty darn good. Uh, mm. You know, jitter, jitter hasn't been a big issue, but for acoustic stuff, transducer testing, that's where the magic always is. Mm. And, uh, what, you know, go ahead. But where, if, if you're, you know, using an audio precision analyzer, say, to measure an amplifier, for example, mm -hmm. yeah, where can the experiment design, I don't want to say go wrong because it's such a leading question, but like, how, how can it vary? Okay. Or can it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, the biggest vari variation is the load itself. If mm -hmm. you if you notice, uh, most people design their experiments to go into a resistive load mm -hmm. because they're trying to measure max power. The mm -hmm. um, thing is, speakers are anything but purely resistive. They have a reactive component. They, they're capacitive or inductive. And the, um, the power supply of the amplifier may have been designed for resistive loads, but not reactive loads. And so you say, okay, well, I'm going to add a component of reactants into my load. And you can do that by using wire-wound resistors. Um, 
but is that equivalent to the speaker and equivalent to which speaker? Is a speaker with six drivers going to have the same reactive load as a single driver speaker? So there's not a there's not really a lot of uh, similarities there. So what happens in the world of standards? This is, is that you can't say, well, our standard requires you to do 200 tests because no one's going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, But there are companies that have tried. There's a company, I can't remember, they're somewhere in Northern Europe uh, called Audiograph. Uh, mm. I don't know if they're Danish or not. Um, and they made a load box and it's very expensive, cost more than the audio precision analyzers, where you can add um, quite a bit of reactants, uh, positive or negative, which translates mm-hmm. to capacitive or inductive. And you can test your amplifier. And what you get is a surface map, basically. And it shows you the performance of the amplifier at different reactance values. Now, does any of those model your speaker? No, but it's a more thorough analysis of the amplifier than just going into a resistive load. So that, that's one big area. Mm. Can I ask a question about that? Because yeah. you, may, you mentioned that you have the concept of like designing a load box, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you, if, I'm, you know, if I were to kind of get an AP and wanted to measure an amplifier, I would also have to get myself a load box Correct. Of, of a certain type. Now, I guess my load box might not be the same as somebody else's load box, right? Correct. I mean, we've already established that it doesn't necessarily – I'm choosing my words carefully. It doesn't necessarily mirror the behavior of a loudspeaker, but even assuming that it did, even though it doesn't, <laughs> those lo- those load boxes are going to be vastly different depending upon, you know, who you know, for every right. experiment designed, right? Right. So, so one of the other uh, instances, for instance, I'm just talking about the reactive component, but mm-hmm. in, in truth, there um, the reactive component changes with frequency. And so you see these impedance curves of speakers that uh, there's a peak and then they go down Mm. and they start peaking up again. That's kind of typical. Depends on the number of drivers and how the crossover is designed, what Mm. the speaker actually sees. So there's that component. But probably the biggest component that I see, and it's one I I showed an example of in the talk, is the fact that we're testing with sine waves and not music. That Mm. is one of the key problems, I think, in creating the uh, disconnect between what we hear uh, and what we measure. Hmm. So you, I mean, how big is this disconnect? I'm going to go off on a tangent here, sorry. <laughs> um, how, big, how big do you perceive this disconnect to be, is it? Well, uh, um, I, I don't know if you recall in the talk, towards the end, I show this burst test where there's a 120-cycle ripple coming off the power supply. Yes, 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 yes. Right, okay. So I have to ask myself, that was just one particular problem that I found on one particular amplifier. Now, I did this, you know, my job was as a salesperson. You know, Audio Precision kind of let me do this as long as my sales were still coming in. So I didn't have the opportunity to research and get, you know, 
20 different amplifiers, 50 different amplifiers, and try the same test and try different types of bursts and different types of signals to see if I could find other problems that may exist. Mm. But, you know, having found one on the first attempt out of the box leaves me with the thought that there's probably a lot more that can be discovered. Right. Now, now, trying to get a standardization on this is really difficult because what I have found, and I spent a lot of my time, a lot of my career in marketing as well, you can make people care about a specification without them having any understanding of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, case in point was <laughs> there's a street, 11th Street in Los Angeles, downtown LA. There's a one block area where there's nothing but car stereo and DJ stores. <laughs> Dis discount car mm -hmm. stereo and DJ stores. And you will see these car stereo amplifiers coming in by the pallet load. And I, I was happened to be in one of these stores one day and one of these pallets arrives and it's a 500 watt subwoofer amplifier some brand i never heard of and it's just an entire pallet and they put it down in the middle of the showroom and on the side of the box it says measured power from this amplifier and you know some of them would say 500 and some would say 511 and 520 and it, probably generated with a random number generator. <laughs> um, I am watching these teenagers um, pouring through the pallet. Oh, I found one that's 521. No, no, I found one that says 522 over here. <laughs> and they don't, the difference between 521 and 522 is absolutely insignificant. Mm. Yet these people cared about it. They didn't understand about dbs and how and what a fraction of a db that is and how it would uh, not be audible at all mm. but they were spending you know who knows uh, they were still going through the pallet when i left and i was probably in the store for about 15 minutes i think i was looking for a car alarm but mm. um <laughs> you know so you can make consumers care about specifications without creating an understanding and the companies that market stereo gear know this. And the, uh, well, I have another case where I went to a, 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 had a customer that was measuring car stereo amplifiers, and it was a very noisy class D design that they had. And we, spent, we sold a special filter that was required to filter out that noise so you can actually measure the amplifier itself just in the audio range. Hmm. And uh, I bring a sample of the filter, and the distortion level goes off from 7% down to, I think, 3%. It was like half the number of distort, the distortion number at the rated power. And so I thought I have made the sale. I've proven to the engineer that his old measurements weren't accurate enough, and you add this filter, and you've got much greater accuracy. He calls me back a week later and says, our marketing department said the difference between seven and three wasn't great enough to sell more amplifiers, so we're not <laughs> going to buy the filter. Right. So but can I ask you how important 
because okay so i get a lot of press releases right and yeah. one thing i see re- i mean you talk about com- companies or or even individuals convincing other people of a, a certain numbers worth mm-hmm. at the moment i see a lot of a lot of quoting of thd it seems mm-hmm. to be the sort of the the fashionable thing and i do mean that actually like it because it it seems to be more popular than ever to quote THD and what this amplifier or this DAC does. Is that, are we being misled by a single number? Yeah, you can be. Um, you have to look at how it's measured. So, uh, mm. you know, uh, Audio Precision on their website has a uh, white paper on how to read and write specifications. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but even on uh, the talk, um, I show early on a page from manual of an amplifier that I was testing mm. and it shows six different power ratings for the same amplifier. The first one said 95 Watts a channel. And then if you go down, uh, there's another one where you can, it could be up to 240 Watts per channel. And the difference in all of these was, uh, the test conditions. Mm. So some of them were one kilohertz tests, some of them were all channels driven, some of them was just one channel driven, and some of them were at lower impedances. And so if you don't see all of it, oh, uh, yeah, uh, I think there's one other degree. I'm, I'm escaping and I'm not looking at the slide. The uh, When you look at all those differences, and you say, well, why was the top one shown as the lowest one? Mm. And the reason was that uh, the Federal Trade Commission basically defined, I think it was in 1973 when the uh, specification was published, how to measure a stereo amplifier. And it's very specific. It says you have to warm up the amplifier for a period of time, uh, and then once it reaches normal, you have to test the amplifier from 20 to 20 hertz, uh, 20 kilohertz, and then you have to uh, measure it from a quarter watt output all the way to maximum power. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting requirement. It's one that I think a lot of people have forgotten over the years. Um, and because it's a pretty easy at maximum power to get low distortion because you have the full uh, full voltage range of the amplifier at your disposal. Mm-hmm. When you're down at a low power level, it's more difficult because now the noise of the THD plus N specification is going to become more significant. So you need a really low noise design to get that result. So... I look at some of this stuff and I say, well, yeah, these are important measurements, but how does the thing perform at noise? Another example of uh, things, Bluetooth, right? Bluetooth speakers are probably one of the most popular listening sources today. Mm-hmm. We've gone from a world of stereo to multi-channel, now down to mono through Bluetooth connection. Um, but we were selling Bluetooth audio analyzers and there's, the the um, A2 uh, A2DP I think it is is yes. the uh, profile for for mm-hmm. stereo Bluetooth. It uses mm-hmm. a codec called the SBC, the subband codec. Yeah, 
absolutely terrible. You put a sine wave into that thing, you see anything but a sine wave coming out of it. You see all sorts of artifacts coming up mm. out of it. Don't know uh, why that is. Uh, AppDex came out with their first codec, and you put a sine wave in, and you see, saw a sine wave out. Now, both codecs registered a signal-to-noise ratio of 72 dB. Mm-hmm. However, uh, this SBC codec had all sorts of coloration in it, and the Aptex codec had a higher noise floor, but it was cleaner overall. And your mind can filter out noise. If it's a steady noise, mm-hmm. yeah, your mind can filter it out. And of course, now Aptex has improved their codecs. They have the Aptex HD and mm-hmm. Aptex Adaptive and things like that. But the... Uh, it, w- it was really interesting to see that with all the processing we now put into our devices that sometimes a sine wave test is tough for processing. For instance, you put echo cancellation into a device, like you have a smart speaker, uh, you know, so this, you have a speaker with a microphone built right into it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have echo cancellation in it. Well, what is uh, or feedback cancellation, and you put a sine wave through that, and it says, oh, sine wave, that must be feedback. All of a sudden, you can't test with sine waves anymore. <laughs> I see. So modern devices have really created a, a, a much more difficult playing field for measurements. Mm. And it's difficult to stay on top because people are used to the THD number, Yes. So they want to. So they want to use it. We've been using that number for eighty years or something. Mm. It's easy to measure. Um, now you come up with some new measurement, uh, like for speech processing uh, in telephony. They use something called a mean opinion score. Where it tests like uh, PESC, uh, perceptual. Uh, I can't remember what the acronym stands for. P E S Q. Mm. Uh, the S Q stands for speech quality. Percept, uh, the P stands for perceptual or something, mm. perceptual evaluation of speak quality. And then there's another one called Polka, which is a newer version. Um, and they look at d- things that are common in telephony applications like changes in latency because of the, the network, uh, the phone network is changing in speed, dropouts, noise during gaps and things like that. And I'm like, wow, that's a whole different take on frequency response and distortion. Mm. But but it makes sense You're, um, to uh, attempt that approach. Although I tried to do some encrypted uh, government systems where between sil- there was no silence in the broadcast signal. Was, there was always noise where you mm. think there was a break between words. They'd inject noise as part of this encryption. Oh, you could make out what the person was saying, no problem at all. And, military parlance, they'd say the signal is five by five. <laughs> Yet this, these perceptual uh, analysis that, oh, this, this speech quality is terrible. In case it was not, it was clearly you could understand what the other person was saying. Um, so those algorithms have their limitations. In, uh, the, in the U.S., we have the uh, fire code the uh, NFPA, National Fire Protection Code, I think it's uh, Article 72, uh, that talks about transmission, uh, 
speech quality of PA systems in public buildings. Right? You have an active shooter situation, you have a bomb threat, something like mm-hmm. that, a fire. You need to warn people to get out of the building. So they put speakers in the lobbies, and you've seen these buildings, right? They're glass and steel and hard mm-hmm. surfaces, and you get lots of echoes. So they uh, came up with something called a STIPA measurement, S-T-I-P-A, and it stands for Speech Transmission speech transmission index, I think, for public address. Mm -hmm. I could be slightly wrong on that. So it's not that you choose a good speaker and choose a good amplifier. It's where you place the speaker in the building that determines how much echo you get and how much, you know, what the reverb is and whether someone can understand the message. So you look at all these different Approaches, right? From the electrical world, we just use an audio precision analyzer. In architectural world, we'll use something called STIPA. In telephony world, we'll use Pescor Polka. Mm. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to relate the subjective, the objective measurement to the subjective experience. No one's nailed it yet. (laughs) Right. Because, I mean, from just from picking up from what you're saying in the general sense, is you're saying that the the, the sort of analysis of sound quality in a measurement context is far, far bigger than just THD from an audio precision device. Correct. It can go. It can go off in all sorts of different directions. Correct. But but it, so therefore is our, is our sort of is the audiophile world's. I don't. I don't want to use the word obsession, but I guess say keen interest in just a single number, say like THD. Is that because we want to see the world as simpler than it actually is? Um, you, you know, it, that, that's, an, that's an interesting question. I, I, no matter where you are in life, right, um, mm. people like to have something to brag about. <laughs> that's very true, especially right. in the audiophile world, yes. Well, yes. No, you know, the car world, right? We talk the zero to 60 yeah. times, right? We, we may talk maximum speed. And, you know, I remember uh, I used to go to Tokyo fairly often, and I would see these Lamborghinis stuck in Tokyo traffic, never mm-hmm. getting out of first gear. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm thinking, I bet that guy is pretty proud that his car can accelerate to 60 miles per hour in, th- in three seconds. But when was the last time he ever accelerated to 60 miles an hour in, in Tokyo traffic? Probably never. Mm. And, but someone obviously cared to buy this fancy car with all this great capability, and they probably feel good knowing that they have that capability. So this is where the marketing aspect comes in, where, you know, are we practical in our wants and desires? And the answer is no, we're not. Because, uh, I mean, the... The guy in the in the in the car in Tokyo, though, his his probably I'm guessing his pleasure comes from knowing that people see him in that car. Absolutely, I mean, he, he doesn't care that he's stuck in. In fact, it's probably beneficial to him that he's stuck in traffic, so more people can turn around and look at him and go, "Wow, look at that awesome car! Isn't that isn't that dude awesome?" I mean, I guess that's his his right. sort of modus operandi, right? But so. Is it the same? I mean, because you can't really show off audiophile gear in the same way out in the street. But you oh, can. But we do. We do all the time. We go onto forums and we show a picture of our rack. Exactly. At home. Yes. Yes. Right. So is, 
are those sort of THD, THD figures at the equivalent of zero to 60 times for yeah, I, pe- people on forums? I think there's something to that. Um, you know, it, it, it's a way we can pound our chests. <laughs> and, and that is such a strong uh, part of the human condition. Mm. To, to deny it would be wrong. And, you know, uh, one of my favorite stories is I have a friend who owns a professional sound company, does touring sound for large acts, international acts, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father asked him for advice on buying a new home system. He says, well, my son is an audio guy. He understands what these things mean. I'll talk to him. <laughs> and, so, and so his son's advice was, dad, set a budget. Then go out and buy the nicest looking thing for that budget. Because he knew at his dad's age, most of his upper end hearing loss was gone. Mm. And he also knew if his father didn't like looking at it every day, he would never be happy with it. Right. I mean, well, this is the kind of area I work in, really, is like gear that also looks looks as good as it sounds. Oh, yeah. We all like that. Yeah, I I like it too. I mean, you know, I, I go to, I love technical museums and, uh, you know, you see some old technology and you'll look at uh, like an old radio, for instance, from the twenties and you look at yes. the uh, workmanship on the case with the dovetail joints and all the intricacy carvings and things like that. We know they sounded like crap, but they look beautiful and I can still appreciate their beauty today with the thing off doesn't need to be working or plugged in. I can still appreciate their beauty. I agree. There's, there is beauty in sort of, yeah, in I guess we call it vintage equipment now, really, but like old cameras or, yeah, yes. just even, even old. Like, I wonder how many people are, would fetishize a, a, let's say, a Mac from 2003 or 97, you know, like those kind of, what was that thing called? The clear, the, it was a clear plastic Mac all in one. Oh, I forgot, but it's not the iMac. Oh, yes, yes, I, I know what you mean. You I thought you were talking mean? about a Macintosh amplifier. You're talking about the computer. Sorry, I took about, yeah, computers. Like, I mean, how right. people fetishize yes. those things. and But they, they would, they're just absolute dogs by modern standards, right? I mean, they wouldn't, they yes. wouldn't do more than, a, you know, write something in, in Word and off you go and that's a, browse the web and that's it, you know? So, yeah, I mean, the, the aesthetics of it obviously are very, very important. But I, I guess I'm I'm also fascinated in the psychology that surrounds people's obsession with numbers, right? Because you said something very interesting about how they give um, people something to brag about. Now, I think that in recent years, we've seen more and more people discussing measurements of audio gear on the internet. And I think it's because it's much easier to look at, if you put a graph, I don't know, like a THD graph on a forum Everybody can wade in with their two cents, right? Right. It gives people something to talk about. Whereas if you're asking about Amplifier X, maybe there's one guy who maybe heard it at a show and he's going to go, yeah, I heard it at the show and it sounded amazing, ignoring the room and the speakers and everything else and all the other variables. So it doesn't really, you know, the list, you know, the fact you have to go out and listen to gear doesn't make for a great conversation on the net, but Graphs and charts and their interpretation, I want to come to this in a minute, actually, um, their interpretation really generates a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, now with programs like Rumi Q Wizard, everyone thinks they can test. Mm. And 
And they don't understand that using the output from your computer's headphone port, for instance, is not really a good source. It's not a very stable source. That mm-hmm. you know, um, are you familiar with something called the Dunning Kruger effect? Absolutely, I am. Yes, I, I have to deal with people like this all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Do you want to explain it, it John, Jonathan? So I don't. Sure. Like a, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, Dunning and Kruger were two social psychologists, and uh, I think they were at Cornell University. And around 1999, they published a paper that, after doing some studies, that showed that people with low ability overestimated their abilities, and people with high abilities underestimated their abilities. Mm. And the the conclusion was that if you're a, for many people with low ability, they lack the knowledge needed to actually rate their abilities. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and then for the people with high abilities, they assumed, well, anything that's easy for them is also easy for the next guy. So, you know, they're just average. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am constantly worried that I'm victim of Dunning-Kruger every time I approach something new. It's like, I think I understand it, but maybe that's just because I don't know how big the issue really is. And you go ahead. Yeah, but the important thing there, Jonathan, if if you don't mind me saying so, is that you actually pause to doubt yourself, right? Yes. And and I don't know, I mean, this is a cultural phenomenon, right? This This is, it's not just unique to audio, but I do do wonder, and maybe I'm this as well, like in what I do, you know, presenting, you know, stuff on videos on YouTube, but it's much easier now than it ever was to create a website. Mm -hmm. It's much easier now than it ever was to create a YouTube channel, right? Mm -hmm. It's much easier now than it ever was to go and buy an AP and start measuring gear and Mm -hmm. publish your results, right? Right. With interpretations. Um, So, I mean, I guess Dunning-Kruger feeds into all of those different channels. Right. So, uh, you know, let me give you a point. So I, I talk about, you know, you have the software. The software you can get, uh, and you can do amazing stuff with the software. But to compare apples to apples, hmm. um, one of the big things in measurements is a consistent source impedance. In other words, the output going into the device under test should always hmm. be the same. And I remember I had a customer, they were a manufacturer of guitars. Mm-hmm. And some of their acoustic guitars had a, a, uh, a pickup inside the guitar, like a piezo pickup or something like that. But it had a little active electronics, a little uh, three-band EQ and some gain and whatnot. And so that circuitry needed to get tested on the AP. And so they had... I had a few of the older model of AP, and the newer model comes out at a lower cost, and so they decide, oh, they need to expand production. They need to use the newer model. And uh, these circuits were actually built by a third-party contract manufacturer, Mm -hmm. and they were performing the tests, and I get a panic call from them. Everything is failing. Hmm. And so I go out there, and I'm looking at the test results, and I say, okay, everything's failing. And the guy's swearing up and down. I haven't changed a darn thing. How come they're all failing now? And I look at how much the results had changed, and they shifted by you know, quarter dB or half dB, something like that. 
I get out a pencil and start doing some calculations. And uh, I call up the engineer and I go, do you have an input impedance of about 1,200 ohms? He goes, yeah, how did you know? Because the new analyzer, instead of having a 20-ohm output, had a 40-ohm output or something like that. Mm -hmm. The impedance was slightly different. And that difference was enough to change the results to cause all of a sudden all their tests to fail. And so the answer was very easy because I just moved the targets based on uh, the voltage division that would occur with the input impedance of their uh, circuit and the output mm-hmm. impedance of the audio amplifier. And uh, But those are the kind of things that someone that hasn't been burned by this before wouldn't even know that that is a point of consideration when making tests. Right. So what you're saying is there are lots of little things that can trip you up. And when they do trip you up, these are the things that feed into your collective experience over the years. So you become a better master of your tool. Correct. Right. Because it is, let's, I mean, it is a tool and I guess it can be used poorly and also very, very well. But I I wanted to kind of ask you about measurement interpretation. Because Mm -hmm. for me, this seems to be, I I don't know, like in many ways, it seems to be a bit of a lottery from the stuff I read across the net. I mean, some people say, oh, this is good. Some people say, oh, these measurements are not good and I can't recommend this product. So like, how do you know when some, like how would a layman like me know who has done the experiment properly or would I, would I have no clue? Yeah. You you know, it's, um, it's difficult. It's, it Mm. certainly is. Uh, A fellow by the name of Ron Stryker, he was a past president of the audio engineering society. Mm. Um, He did a presentation uh, 15 years ago, I think was when I saw it. He had a box that uh, I can't remember if he was trying to compare cables or some some type of circuitry. And uh, he had a very high-end studio monitor in front of the room, and he had this switch in the box, and it could go to cir- circuit A, circuit B, or maybe it's cable A and cable B. And there was a little red light that went on and a blue light that went on. And, you know, there's 100 people in this meeting, and he says, all right, I'm going to play, he had classical music, pop music, jazz, female singer, male singer, just selection of music. Mm -hmm. And he goes back and forth between A and B, and you're looking at the little, and there's a slight pause, there's like a half second pause as it did did its switching back and forth. And he tried to get um, people to determine whether they liked A or B better. Mm-hmm. And when he was done with the presentation, he, he asked, you know, how many people think A sounds better? And, uh, you know, a bunch of hands go up. How many people think B sounds better? Uh, a bunch of people uh, raised their hands. And how many people couldn't decide? And I was in that third group. We were the minority. Most people mm-hmm. took a stance. The real thing is, all his little switch did was interrupt the music for a half second and change the color of the light that was lit. <laughs> it right. didn't do anything to the signal. But he had convinced 
most of the people, let's say, let's say it was two thirds, one third, one third, one third. He'd convinced two thirds of the people that there was a difference between the circuits. That was a very interesting social experiment in my, my opinion. We're all guilty of that. Um, I, I have gone into listening rooms and said, wow, that was, that was good. And then the next time I heard the same gear go, um, yeah, it doesn't do anything for me. Well, why was it good the first time? Were they serving, uh, you know, fine wine with it or something? <laughs> with right, your, your mood could have been different that day. I mean, there are all sorts of right. things that can interfere right. with the subject's interpretation. This is, you know, right. I mean, yeah. And, and the one thing that I have found with myself is there have been a handful of times in my life where I've walked into a situation where I had a visceral reaction to the sound system that was playing. Mm. Like I, it's like, I felt like my extremities were tingling <laughs> and um, doesn't happen very often. Now, why does it happen in those certain times? I know the, uh, the last time it happened was about two years ago. I was visiting a uh, Grammy Award-winning engineer who had uh, $100,000. I was listening to, I think, like a 9.4 mix. And his main five speakers were the JBL M2 monitors, mm -hmm. which were amazing speakers. Mm -hmm. So that's $100,000 worth of speaker right there. Mm -hmm. And then on his uh, height speakers, he had a, a 7 series. I can't remember if they were 705s or 708s. Also amazing speakers. And he's playing things to me at a really high volume. It was some Indian music that he had recorded. Um, and just, you know, they have the big kettle drums and they, all sorts of sounds. And it was amazing thing. And, he, and playing at pretty high volume. And I found whenever I knew the music was going to reach a certain crescendo, my body would tense up because I'm waiting for the distortion to come out of the horns. Right. <laughs> it, and I was about halfway into the song before I finally was able to relax enough to know that there was no distortion coming, that this sound system was capable of playing at these volumes. Mm. And it was a very, and at that point, I was no longer dreading what might happen next. And I had, the, I had this, I don't know what to call the experience, quite honestly, but I was able to relax and, mm. and really enjoy and get into the music. And you know, I had that tingling sensation again or whatever. Um, but it was interesting how I'm so accustomed to things not being able to play well loud that uh, I didn't appreciate that my body automatically had done that. Maybe I've been to too many concerts or something. <laughs> right, but could somebody just measure the, the distortion on that system and sort of determine that it's very, very low and say to you, Jonathan, this is why you enjoyed that sound right. so much? Well, you notice the, on speaker systems, they do not publish distortion figures. Now, right. most, most of your distortion is going to occur in the transducer. In the yes. Yeah. And so we know this but we don't specify it for speakers. We specify it for amplifiers. Mm. Well, you know, it's my opinion that, yes, it's a way to weed out different amplifiers, but it's, in reality, 
your speaker system is going to mask whatever that distortion is. So, I, you know, I've often wondered about this. Yeah, like if 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 the speaker is the le- let's call it the least transparent or the, you know the most interfering component in your chain, how how can we even here determine the differences between amplifiers on a distortion level, or are we hearing something different because they don't sound the same? Right, right. So. Um, Amplifiers can certainly color the sound, and that mm-hmm. coloration could have nothing to do with you know the power level. That's something mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think THD is a good representation of you know you're, you're trying to take something that occurs at different frequencies across different power levels and sum it up with all one number. It's, it's mm-hmm. like looking at the Mona Lisa and saying it's brown. It doesn't quite. Right. It's like looking at the Mona Lisa and saying, oh, I think that's a seven out of 10. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I know that's a subjective thing, but imagine you could like, you know, just scan it, put all the, I don't know, run, run the scan into a, an algorithm and it just spits out a single number and it comes out 6.2. You know, you're like, oh, it's like a pitchfork review. You know, it's just. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like wine ratings, really. Um, and, Mm. and, And you know what? I still have my little app on the phone that I use to rate wines. Uh, you know, if I'm in the supermarket and there's some wine I never heard of, but it's on a deep discount, and I'll, mm. maybe I'll go, oh, maybe I'll try this one, and I'll bring up the app, and maybe I'll have a chance to read some of the reviews. And um, But, uh, ah, you know what? At this price, at this score, yeah, I'll experiment with that. I have no idea what the other people like, and that's a very personal experience, right? Right. I mean, because the other thing is, is, is that th- this sort of pseudo obsession with THD presupposes, and maybe Sean Olive and Floyd O'Toole actually did prove this, and maybe you can clarify this for me. You know, like the lower distortion is subjectively more, more pleasurable, number one. And two, it also presupposes that that is what everybody is after. Like the, that's what everybody wants. I, I can't see how that's possible. Maybe it's the majority opinion. I don't know, but well, so I don't think uh, Floyd and Sean spent much time worrying about distortion. Right. I think I think what they did is so. One thing that they did that was very smart is they rated their observers. They have, I think it's a. It used to be on the Harmon site. Uh, they came up with a tool to determine how how uh, acute your listening is. Mm. And they take uh, some music samples and they divide them up in anywhere from two to 12 bands. And their little app will randomly boost or cut one of the bands. And it's uh, up to you to guess which band has been boosted or cut. Mm. And their trained listeners or their golden years can do this. I think it was 12 bands and they could discern like a, I don't know if it's 1 dB, 2 dB, whatever it was, they could discern that difference and say, oh, I think this band was boosted. I think this band was cut. Mm. It's a very difficult test. I tried it at three bands. I don't remember how I did, but um, yeah, I didn't try I didn't want to push myself further. I'm not a trained listener. But they mm. when but they was that with, was that with white noise? Or no, pink it was noise? with music. Oh, okay. Okay. I, um, and so uh, 
So that's a very difficult task. And when mm. they ran their tests, they had uh, hundreds of volunteers. A very small group of them was the trained listeners. Now, what they would measure, and they're the only ones that I know that have really taken the time to do it, is they looked at the scores that they assigned, and they ran the tests in different orders to see if the individual tester showed good repeatability depending mm-hmm. on the order of the test. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the golden years definitely were repeatable, like some like better than 90% repeatable. They may not all agree what was the best sounding speaker, but no matter what order they ran the test, their scores were consistent with each with their own scores. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they had, uh, I think, magazine reviewers were one of the groups. And uh, I think they had their own sales and marketing team as another group. I can't remember uh, all the groups that they had. But it turned out that, um, oh, I think dealers. Mm-hmm. Dealers were one of the group. And it turned out the group that did the best was obviously the Golden Years. The next one was actually the dealers. I thought that spoke very well to the industry because, you know, you've been to these uh, showrooms. They can be empty for long periods of the day. And what do you do? You test out the new gear. You you do some of your own tests. It's just kind of the way the the, uh, community works. We enjoy doing that. That's why we're in it. And so they were pretty good. Um, didn't uh, the results didn't uh, speak well for the uh, magazine editors and or their sales and marketing staff? But you know uh, what they also showed was that uh, consumer reports ratings um, were complete conflict. Consumer reports only did an on-axis frequency response, and their mm-hmm. test results showed that. If you reversed their results, you were closer to what users actually preferred. Huh. But what, what they did after they got their results and said, all right, everyone hates the speaker. Everyone loves the speaker. There was one particular speaker that was Speaker of the Year from one magazine. I don't remember which one, which was, it was probably the only speaker that all four groups of listeners said that was crap. Right. And it was Speaker of the Year. And it was a very expensive speaker. I think it was like a $16,000 speaker. Ouch. And uh, very good-looking speaker, too. Uh, but it just didn't fare well in the tests. Mm. And they did a lot of stuff to make sure the testing was done at equal volumes and in quick succession, things like that. Speakers were sit, placed in the same place within two seconds of the previous test. Because they have a, a whole mechanical jig, don't they, to move speakers right, in and right. out, right? The speaker but shuffler. It- yeah. But, but the speaker, so, so I guess listeners should know that that's just a speaker in mono, isn't it? That's correct. It's just, it's just one speaker that people are being asked to listen to. Right. Right. Yeah. They're, they're trying to control the variables as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. But, after, but they then tested all these speakers in their anechoic chamber. Mm. And they didn't just do an on axis response, they rotated the speaker uh, it, you know, or tested the speaker in azimuth and elevation. So they got mm-hmm. you know the the bubble around the speaker, yes. and they de- and they determined that the speakers that were panned were basically so because their off-axis response wasn't smooth. There was right. a lot of there was a lot of coloration that occurred when mm-hmm. you got off-axis. So now they had something that they could say, "Aha, we know how to 
properly measure it. Now they can go back and say, well, if we know we can measure, we can create a speaker with a certain response off axis, that's mm. probably going to uh, do pretty well with the listeners. Is this I called mean, the, spin- the spinorama? The spinorama, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when I was on the, uh, the standards committee with the uh, Consumer Technology Association, uh, mm. we started implementing that, and Floyd Tool was part, part of the effort. I, I left Audio Precision and dropped out of that effort, um, I think, before it came to fruition. Mm. Uh, but they were getting pretty far along with mm. that effort. So I don't know where it stands today. Of course, the market seems to be going towards smart speakers, Amazon, you know, mm. Amazon Echoes and uh, uh, its various competitors. So it's, it's sad to see. So, yeah, I mean, as you you did point out earlier on, like Sean Olive and uh, Floyd Tool's work is, is mainly, it operates in the, I guess, in the frequency response domain on and off axis, right? Yes. So it's not really, as you said, like nothing to really to do with THD or... Well, so um, I do not recall how they're measuring. Uh, they developed their own measurement system. At the, at the time when they started their work, Audio Precision didn't have anything, but mm. um, they may have been doing an impulse response thing. You can... De- you, can uh, you can derive the... You can derive an impulse yes, response yeah, from... Yeah. Uh, pink noise or uh well mm. what sounds like pink noise it's uh something else and or a chirp based system mm. so you can draw so they may have been doing that i i don't mm. recall because i think what they were you know they came they came up with a sort of target curve for loudspeakers right that, yes that would sort of generally predict that if we have a if the frequency response of the speaker roughly matches this curve it is more likely to be enjoyed subjectively by more people I think right. that was their work, right? That that's but, it. Yeah. Right, but if we if we come, like, I mean, that's loudspeakers. But now, if we come back to amplifiers, DAC, CD players, phono stages, has anything been done in in a similar way for those kinds of products, like the electronics? Really, I don't know of anything similar. Um, you know, you you look at what what those guys did and how many millions of dollars they did over mm. decades worth of uh, you know several decades worth of research. And you look at the size of what Harman was, a multi-billion dollar company at the time, and you ask yourself, how many other companies would be willing to put that much effort into it? Mm, For sure. Uh, And maybe there are a few. Maybe some of the Japanese companies in their heydays uh, were doing that kind of work. But then you have to ask, how many of those companies would make that kind of investment and then announce their findings to the public? Mm. That was what's really rare, that they would go to all the various conferences. You know, Floyd's written a book and, and stuff. Uh, so that, this is the first time the public is really seeing what goes on. A lot of my customers were in professional audio, right? So mm-hmm. it's uh, they're trying to do concert sound systems. And what I found was that they all had their own secret sauce that they used for testing. Mm-hmm. For one company, it was the double kick drum. He says, yeah, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, any amplifier can make the first kick sound good, but it's the second kick. Where, you know, is there any reserve power left <laughs> right. in the power supply? Uh-huh. So uh, that was 
that was their test, mimicking the double kick drum. Uh, and others had, had other uh, different approaches. And, you know, I would ask these people, hey, how about giving a talk to the Audio Engineering Society? And uh, most of them said, no, nah, I don't want to give away our secret sauce. And then our competitors will do this and they'll figure out how to fix their problems. I'd rather they, they don't know that they have those problems. By the way, I do want to um, raise something up. I'm doing a little plug here for the Audio Engineering Society. Please do. Yes, please. Um, most of their section meetings are free and open to the general public. You don't have to be a member. Mm-hmm. And usually they're not that in-depth. They're meant for the lay people. We go... Uh, a lot of the members are recording engineers, not design engineers. Mm-hmm. And while recording engineering it has its own set of difficulties, uh, it's not, you know, you don't find those guys working on equations and figuring out dBs and things like that, which mm-hmm. scares a lot of people from research. But the Southern Germany section has a meeting coming up April 20th. It's 5 p.m. Central European time. Mm. And it's listening tests versus measurements. Huh, okay. And so uh, it's uh, someone from the UK and someone from Rodian Schwartz um, that are giving this. You're talking about an in-person meeting here? Well, no, it's going to be a Zoom meeting. Mm -hmm. It's uh, 60 minutes long, and it will be held in English. Okay. And so... If you, um, if I can actually forward you an email uh, or the link to it, if, yes, send me the link and I'll put it in the um, in the notes for this podcast yeah. in the in the box below it on SoundCloud and probably on my website right. as well. So um, April tw- April twentieth, it's early in the morning for me. I don't know if I'll make it. That's uh, mm. what next Tuesday. Um, yeah, it's eight days from today, so it's next Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because it's, I mean, I don't, I don't know how things because. Maybe I don't know whether you know or not, but um, yeah, the sort of vaccination progress in Germany is a lot slower than the US mm-hmm. and the UK. Things did pick up at the very end of last week in a very dramatic fashion. So uh, there's a lot of excitement in this country right now. But um, oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah we're where where I'm located. I think we're at about fifty percent vaccination right now. So we're we're quite happy. Yeah, I got a buddy in LA who's telling me that um, things are just open up, opening up, and you know, they'll be back to normal, whether whether people like it or not, <laughs> in, a, in a few weeks. But um, but it's yeah. By all means, send me the information for um this meeting, and I I will I'll fire it out um even before this podcast goes live. I mean, because it might take me a few days to kind of okay you know, yeah give this some spit and polish. But um, but Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a very illuminating conversation. Oh, it was a pleasure. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast. This week's guest was Jonathan Novick, and you can find the show notes over at darko.audio.